How can we design and develop technologies that are suitable for developing countries? Often, Western goods are kitted out with the highest tech at the greatest expense. Think about the latest phones, cars, and even doorbells. To get to grips with how we can design solutions for the developing world, I spoke to Professor Jaideep Prabhu. Jaideep is a professor of business and enterprise at Judge Business School here in Cambridge. He writes and lectures on the topic of frugal innovation. Frugal innovation is the process of reducing the complexity or cost of a good and its production. The aim is to bring this more in line with the fiscal and resource limitations found in developing nations. I wanted to talk to Jaideep about frugal innovation and his thoughts on what needs to be considered when approaching solutions to some of the world's toughest problems around food. If you are interested in Jaideep and his work, take a look at his book, Jugard Innovation, which provides insight into the innovative brilliance of entrepreneurs in the developing world. Alternatively, read Frugal Innovation which argues that the future of innovation in the West must occur away from an environment containing plentiful resources and a rich market, but instead in an environment with constrained resource and value-hungry consumers. As Benjamin Franklin once said, waste neither time nor money, but make the best use of both. Without industry and frugality, nothing will do, and with them, everything. Now, for my conversation with Professor Jaideep Prabhu. So we have some very high-tech agricultural equipment in the developed world. Why is such technology not used in the developing world? So the main impediment to using really high-tech equipment in developing countries is affordability. So typically when we think about high-tech, it's expensive Mm. because it's uh, usually developed by a team uh, with a a budget working Mm. on a long-term project, uh, often to push the technology frontier, sometimes for the sake of doing that, as opposed to really solving a problem, if you see what I mean. Uh, And then because that process is expensive and takes time uh, and because customers in the developed world can pay, you charge for it, Mm, right? Uh, And so that's been the model really uh, in the developed world, uh, driving innovation for the most part in the 20th century. The model has been typically big companies or the government with big budgets focus on technology for the sake of technology develop something that's expensive, and then charge customers for it. That's the business model. So rather than for the sake of the actual customers, they're looking to help a lot of the time. Well, uh, particularly in the developing world, because in the developed world, you will have sufficient numbers of customers who can afford the high price initially. Mm. And then when enough people adopt it, then you can drop the price. There are learning curve effects, economies of scale kick in, and then the price becomes more affordable over time. And the mass of developed country customers can adopt that technology. But in the developing world, your mass of people 
are much lower in income and therefore your model has to be different your model has to you have to start with something highly affordable mm-hmm. and then you can get profits not from charging high prices but from large volumes large volumes okay so to sort of summarize that western companies in terms of what they tend to get wrong when developing these solutions what are are there like a list of things you can specifically say so like high prices maybe they might use too much too much electricity or things like that like not the actual it's not designed for the specifications of the area what is that list of um of things that were not that good at catering for i think you know one starts with the basic notion that the solutions that are coming out of the west are not designed for the context mm-hmm. in which they might be bought used maintained applied in developing countries mm-hmm. that's where the problems begin they are developed for use application purchase in the west in developed economies and then what tends to happen is they are generally taken as is to developing countries perhaps with some minor modifications and minor price drops and then you expect them to do well and they don't they will only do well typically in the upper echelons of developing economies typically people who are more affluent who are in the formal economy who live in the cities etc mm. and that's certainly not where the farmers are in the yeah, developing world yeah 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 um so then it's clearly i mean it doesn't sound like it's a problem of investment of like them putting enough money into creating new technologies and stuff like that the money is there um is it just investment in the right direction that's the issue in this case rather than investment in general I I think that's right. It's about where the investment is going and how that investment is being used and and where the activity is happening. So even if you decide to focus on solutions for the developing world, but you are based in the west and far away from the context in which you want your solutions to apply, you are likely to fail because mm. you don't have that insight into the market and the yeah. context. Yeah. Even if you have good intentions and you say yes we're going to come up with a highly affordable solution for a poor farmer in rural uh, Africa or rural South Asia for instance, mm. but you're based in Cambridge. Yeah. The chances of you being able to actually develop a solution suited to that context mm. with all its complexities. For instance, maybe there's a lack of electricity, but you don't anticipate it because you're not based there and you you haven't lived that experience. Yeah. So I think it's that distance from where the problem actually is that you're trying to solve mm. that that gets in the way. It's yeah. not necessarily the money or the will because yeah. increasingly the source of economic opportunities and growth is in the emerging world or the developing world. Yeah, you sort of I mean there's some pretty simple timeless analogies of if you stand further away from the target then you're less likely to hit the bullseye. Um and really it doesn't it's funny that it doesn't change for whether it's a tech solution or 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 anything else really it's always just sort of get as close to that final uh customer as possible and then you'll probably get something that actually suits the person you're designing this solution for better and i'd just add to that that you know it's not that you're going to get it right first time we know that so it's about the iteration as well it's about presenting the customer with something that you've built based on your understanding of the problem and then seeing how they use it then iterating with them and again that process is harder to do if you're further away easier to do if you're closer to the customer yeah 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 um so what i mean 
In terms of a list of design constraints, you've mentioned a few already, so you might have uh, a lack of electricity in certain places. Do you think you could take a, do you have a like, case study in mind that you could take and just break down the sort of constraints that a company might see when trying to develop a solution for maybe somewhere in India or sub-Saharan Africa, that type of thing? I'll give a great uh, example for, to me, a very interesting, insightful uh, example. And it's not just one uh, case. There are hundreds, possibly, mm -hmm. of uh, solutions to help people cook in a healthier, safer, environmentally sustainable way. So we know that this is a massive problem in the world, particularly in the developing world, that people cook with very poor quality biofuels, typically wood or leaves and so on, indoors. This is really bad for their health because they're breeding, breathing particles uh, indoors. But it's also bad for the environment because these particles escape into the environment. Um, and it's not very efficient, frankly. But it's cheap and affordable, and this is how they've done it for centuries, mm. perhaps, right? Now, we know that that's a problem. And there are people, very well-meaning people in the West, typically in academic institutions, who are studying uh, you know, uh, fluid dynamics and so on. And, and, you know, they come up with sometimes very clever technological solutions cool to this solution. problem. Cool solutions <laughs> to this problem. And well-intentioned, yeah. as I said. So they'll come up with cook stoves, you know, smokeless ovens. Yeah. They'll come up with solar cookers, you know, which potentially make perfect sense, mm. right? Only to find that when they give them to people, say tribals, uh, in the Indian state of Odisha, uh, who have cooked in this way, for, you know, that is with poor quality biofuels in their homes, indoors. When they're presented with these very beautiful cook stoves, mm. um, they may use it a couple of times, but if you go back a week or a month later, you find it disused. Yeah. And this is true not just in India. There are examples in other countries as well in Africa and so on. And often the problem is precisely this, that they have designed it without really knowing the context. And there are so many things that are unanticipated that may get in the way. So when anthropologists then went in to understand why these communities were not using these cook stoves that had been designed to solve their problem, there were many explanations for why, but some are very revealing. So when they asked these tribal women in India why they were not using the cook stoves, they gave two, uh, two reasons. One is they said the food tasted different. And that's true, right? I mean, because yeah. you try barbecuing something with the wrong sort of fuel or the right sort of fuel, mm. it adds something to the flavor or you're used to it. We're just used to certain flavors cooked in a certain way. Now, that's one thing. The other thing was even more tricky because it wasn't related to the food as such. What would happen was that these tribal women would set out in the morning every day to go collect this firewood for cooking. It was a ritual. And of course, you could say it's inefficient, it's time consuming, and it is. But they, it was also a social, it was an opportunity for them to talk to each other and to share their own problems and help each other out. And that was illuminated by this. Uh, and that's a very important ritual. So mm. this uh, having this cook stove, which, you know, would use these, you know, uh, cleaner materials and so on, eliminated the need for them to go out which would be a hassle to some people from outside the community, but to them was a very important part of their socialization. Mm. And they didn't want to lose that. Interesting. Um, so you've got these problems that sort of come from the point, uh, the perspective of Western companies approaching the solution to these problems. Um, 
in terms of local people uh, trying to look for solutions to such problems, what holds innovation back within those communities themselves? Because if the main, I mean, the, the main problem is obviously a mixture between, you know, how good the solutions are that are being developed, but then also how well a person knows the customer that they're trying to develop solutions for. So if we take people who know the customers really well, what holds back innovation from their perspective? Well, I see two parts to that question. Because okay. first, you sort of asked me, what about the people there? Yeah. You know, let's say the people in the tribal community who presumably are aware of this problem because they develop these lung diseases mm -hmm. and so on. So how do they solve their problems? Uh, and what prevents them from coming up with uh, a solution that others can use? So I think very often, and this is something that I find in communities around the world and not just in the poorest countries, even in the richest countries, everybody faces problems in their community, which are somehow unique to their community because of the nature of their, where they're living. And typically in any community, there is always a small minority that have figured out a solution. Okay. Right. Okay. And now they for whatever reason, they figured it out. Either they're just, they got lucky or they're, they're, they're smarter or they have some skills or they're just persistent. It, it just bugs them. This problem bugs them and they figure it out. Sometimes just necessity is the mother of invention. They figure out a solution. Now, the challenge though of is to take that solution to the next level and enable it to be something that's regularized, that is scaled in the in the sort of jargon. Yeah. So uh, how you how can you commercialize it? How can you take that and make it systemic somehow? Yeah. That's the challenge. Because yeah. often the people who come up with the solution, their intention is not necessarily to commercialize it. Yeah. They may not even be aware of how to do that. Yeah. Their, their motivation is really to solve their own problem. Yeah. And then if anyone else around wants to do the same thing they'll probably show it to you but yeah or do it themselves or, or do, charge you for that or they time. might charge you yeah, but you yeah. know often that's not their intention yeah and they may not have the skills or the resources to do that because typically as we know even a startup will need a team mm. and you'll need people who have different capabilities some people who are on the technical side some people are on the financing side some on the marketing side and you may not have that in some of these uh, low-income communities, particularly rural communities. You may not have that those resources. So that's when I think the second part of your question, you need some sort of uh, organization to step in. Uh, it might be a local organization, but one that's uh, geared towards identifying these solutions, which are diamonds in the rough, and then polishing them and taking them to the next level. So that requires a degree of uh, commitment. It requires a degree of organization and a degree of resources. And you, you do have NGOs who do that. You have startups uh, or social enterprises from those communities who do it. And increasingly, you have large companies, both local domestic companies, as well as multinationals companies from elsewhere going in. And I'll give you an example of how that happened uh, in Kenya uh, with something called M-Pesa, which is a mobile payment solution that was introduced in Kenya in 2007, not by a bank, even though it's a financial service, by a, but a mobile phone company, mm -hmm. Vodafone subsidiary, Safaricom. And actually, this is an example of how Vodafone had actually developed in the West, I think, in their labs here, actually, and people in Cambridge were partly responsible for that platform. Yeah. So they had this idea, they, they knew that there was a problem in the developing world of financial exclusion. Very few people are in the formal banking system. Uh, and banks were very slow at 
banking people. They were just, you know, it just took time and effort and there was no particular motivation for them to do it from those countries. Uh, and on the other hand, they'd seen mobile telephony taking off in, in Africa, in Kenya and so on. So they thought, what about uh, enabling the phone to do mobile payments? Yeah. Makes total sense, right? So this is where even from a distance, you can come up with, you can be well-intentioned, you can see a problem and you can come up with the beginnings of a great solution. Mm -hmm. And they had this platform. They said, okay, let's develop some software and the phone can be used then to exchange money in some form, right? And they went in thinking, who shall, who shall we try and target? Let's target, target microfinance uh, professionals, the agents, because, you know, we know that microfinance is big in the uh, informal economy. Um, and even if they're not banked, they'll have microfinance loans and they have to repay those loans. So the agents may want to uh, have an easier way to, uh, to get the loan back, you know, mm -hmm. to get payments. Instead of having to go door to door, they could just get it through yeah, a mobile. Send a text and then receive the money back. Basically. Precisely. Yeah. So that again makes sense. Mm -hmm. Now they went into Kibera, a slum in uh, Nairobi, to test this idea with locals. And they discovered very quickly that the microfinance agents actually didn't want it because they preferred to go door to door and see their clients in the face. That's how they identified their credit worthiness and tra built trust and built the relationship. Yeah. And it's habits, right? Yeah, it's a yeah, bit yeah. like the women in tribal uh, Orisha. They were just used to going out, getting the firewood and cooking in that way. So breaking a habit is hard. Yeah, I can imagine it almost being that if someone says maybe they're not able to pay for something, that little bit of like personal trust means that you can figure out whether or not they're in a really dire situation and you need to be careful or if actually just give them another week type thing. And yeah. That may be where. So there could be all kinds of things. You see how these behavioral issues and social issues come in, right? So now what does Vodafone do? They had this idea. They had a hypothesis. Turns out it's, there's not much support for it and they may have been surprised and they would not have anticipated this necessarily sitting in a lab here. It's only when they went into the field and tried it that they get the data and the evidence. Now, they, they stuck with it, though. They could easily have left and said, there's nothing here and let's leave and be disappointed. But they stuck with it. And then they did something that all startups do, but not necessarily big companies, is that they pivoted. They said, hmm, who else might? Is there anyone else who might do this? And this is where it goes back to my previous point. People in Kenya who are in the informal economy face this problem of being excluded from the banking system, particularly when members of their family migrate from the village to the city and want to send money home. Mm -hmm. This is a problem for them. They have to use Western Union, which is expensive, or they have to take the money themselves, which is risky, or send it with a friend. And it's just inconvenient and expensive. So they had this problem and they had figured out a way, some of them, you know, in the in that community, that 1% I talked about, had figured out a way to text minutes to each other as a form of currency. Clever, but not strictly legal. Mm -hmm. But they had figured this out and Vodafone noticed that. And they said, what if we just take that to the next level? And this is the point I made that sometimes you need that organization to come in, mm. see what people are doing mm. informally, and then say, can we regularize this? Can we systematize this? Can we take it to the next level and scale it? And that's precisely what they did. They, they went to the central bank. The central bank said, okay, we're convinced that this is an opportunity, but we want you to ensure that this platform is secure, give us evidence that it is that it complies with money laundering regulations globally, you know, that it's not a banking service legally, otherwise you have to get a banking license, all those things. They did that. And then, you know, this is a massive success story, not just in Africa, but in many 
Yeah, I, I've actually once used M-Pesa uh, whilst in Kenya. And it, it's cool. I mean, in a way, it's like it's almost a little bit of a leapfrog of some of the systems we have Absolutely. in the Western world, which is, yeah. which is uh, it's funny. Um, yeah. So if you could, do you think you could try and summarize the sort of problems that you have mentioned to date? What are the problems around the way Western companies innovate? Why do they get this stuff wrong? Um, yeah, can you provide some yeah. rough summary? Yeah, so I think let's start with the nature of the problem mm. uh, at its heart. The nature of the problem at its heart is that you have roughly 3 billion people around the world, mostly in developing countries, who are outside the formal economy trying to get in. Mm. So by that, I mean they're outside the banking system, so they're unbanked. They don't have access to clean energy typically from the grid. Mm. They, they will not have regular access to it, even if they're village is electrified, they may not actually be able to tap into that electricity. Mm. So they use uh, kerosene and bad biofuels and so on. Uh, and the list goes on. They don't have access to good education or healthcare and so on. So that is a massive uh, population that has unmet basic needs. That also offers opportunities mm. for solutions. You can go in there and come up. If you can come up with a solution that is affordable, into their income levels. And it's not just uh, their income levels in the way that we understand it. It's also the fact that because they're in the informal economy, they earn and spend on a daily basis. So it's not like they can take loans against some collateral. It's not like they have liquidity to pay upfront costs for capital intensive goods. You know, they earn and spend on a daily basis. So that's tricky. You have to think of service models, pay as you go, things like that. That's a big challenge. And that's where things like M-Pesa help because they enable micropayments. So that's the context. Uh, uh, that's the scale of the problem, but it also has potential solutions. But that requires, as we said, being able to go into those communities, understand the problem, spend some time really understanding the complexity of the situation, and then developing a solution, often co-developing a solution with the people there with this kind of iterative model so that you get it right it works for the people in their context. They're able to afford it given the way they earn and spend. And, and then you can scale it. Now, the challenge then from the perspective of companies in the West trying to solve that is, you know, we discussed some of them. So one is that typically their model has not been that. Their model uh, to innovation has been high-end, expensive initially, and then perhaps affordable. That business model doesn't work typically if you're trying to go after low-income people who are outside the formal economy. You have to start highly affordable and then try and scale it and make your profits from the volumes, not from margin. So the business model is very different. You've got to change your business model. That could be very hard for any organization in the West to do. The other is the distance, that even if you intend uh, for good intentions and in the sense of, you know, you want to improve people's lives or because you want to make a profit either way. And sometimes there's no inconsistency between the two. Even if you want to create solutions that are successful for the developing world, if you're not actually based there, it's going to be hard for you to really, you know, understand the complexities of the situation and therefore develop a solution, co-develop a solution for the people in that context. So that would be a summary. You know, mm. you are, your model is different and you come from a very different context and you're typically removed from the problem you're trying to solve. Yeah, okay. Um, so then, what is Jugard Innovation or Frugal Innovation? Um, and how can Western companies actually use this to better solve these problems? How does it help people in developing world 
solve these problems. So I'll start with the word jugad, okay. which is uh, a, a word that comes from Hindi or Urdu or Punjabi. It's really something that was originated in some ways by farmers in North India. And farmers, as we know, face a lot of problems uh, in their local context. It could be anything related to running their farm, getting access to water or energy or fertilizer or selling their crops on the commercial side, you know. Uh, so they face problems on a daily basis. And equally, they are very resourceful. You know, they may not have resources, but they're resourceful. If you see what I mean. Yeah. So they use their brains yeah, <laughs> to yeah. figure out a solution. End up figuring out solutions from nothing. From nothing, yeah. literally, or from what they have. <laughs> and that's really how yeah. to describe Jugard. It's basically you face a problem and then you look around and say, what do I have? What resources do I have that I can use to solve this problem? And in often use the resources I have as substitutes for resources I don't have. Mm. Right. Because you don't have the luxury of time. Uh, you know, if you're in the field, you can't say, okay, I'll do it next week. You know, uh, your crops destroyed for the season. Uh, you don't necessarily have the uh, luxury of money. You can't just say, oh, I'll just buy the latest, you know, widget or something uh, from this Western company because you don't have that kind of money. Um, and, and you can't take a loan easily that easily, you know, uh, and you don't want to take loans because in the past you got indebted and then that leads to serious suicides by farmers and so on, social pressures. So, uh, you know, you as a farmer have these problems. You have learned that you got to solve your own problems with the resources that you have. And that's a good description of Jugaad. It's taking what you have to solve problems that you have in an affordable, sustainable way. Now, the thing, though, is that often it's one person or one family unit uh, solving their problem with what they have. And then that's it. It doesn't scale. So Jugard has to be distinguished from Jugard innovation. Mm. Jugard is just this practice that all of us anywhere in the world, you know, we have some basic ingenuity. If we face a problem here and now, we find a way to fix it. Mm. Uh, but of course, in the West, we have resources and we can get someone else to solve this problem for us and so on. Uh, so that's Jugard, you know, where you just do a quick fix. But the Jugard innovation is about how you take that initial quick fix and then you scale it. And that's much harder to do. Um, but I think that is where you see companies now, uh, both in developing countries and multinationals, certainly in developing countries, have realized that there is something there that they can use to come up with appropriate solutions for people. Because if you use that basic approach, take the resources that people tend to have, figure out how to do more with less, and then scale it, then you have that business model that will be successful in that environment because you'll come up with an affordable, relevant solution that can then be taken to hundreds of millions of people and which could end up being quite profitable while transforming their lives. Yeah. So that's the essence of it. Are there any examples that you can provide uh, that specifically focus on the sort of agricultural or food sector, that type of thing of this type of innovation in action? Lots of examples, both the Jugard as a quick fix and then the Jugard innovation as the scaled version. So the quick fix, I was talking about these farmers, for instance. And if you Google Jugard, you'll see lots of pictures of vehicles that have been cobbled together, literally cobbled together by farmers in North India, for instance. They will take uh, the, a wooden chassis of a bullock cart. They'll put some rubber 
nice rubber tires on it. They'll take the water pump and use it as a motor mm-hmm. and then a mo- you know, a cycle or something. And they'll make a motorized vehicle not only to use as a plow in their field, but then also to take their produce to the market and to carry passengers as well who pay. So, you know, you have these kind of hybrid vehicles and just cobbled together. And of course, this is not a regular solution, right? This is not a systematized solution. But uh, automotive companies then can take inspiration from that Mm. and figure out how they might be able to make a cheaper car in this way. But then, of course, standardize it, ensure there's quality control and all that kind of stuff. Now, coming to specific agricultural solutions, there are many. So one of the problems that people have recognized exist in the farming community, in particularly developing countries, is that, as I said, there are individual farmers who have found an ingenious solution to some problem that many farmers in that place uh, face. Something, let's say, to do with water preservation or irrigation or yields or new types of crops or whatever, right? But Farmers in the next village would not be have heard of it and would not be aware of it and would not adopt it. And so there's this problem of diffusing the best ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those are slow to diffuse, unfortunately. Typically, you know, a good idea will diffuse, but it doesn't in these contexts because their time is limited. Mm-hmm. They don't move around that much and so on. Now, of course, they have mobile devices. So there is this organization called Digital Green, which is actually spun out of Microsoft Labs, research labs in India. Digital Green basically recognized that people now have mobile phones and that could be a way to diffuse best practice in the agricultural community. Faster and cheaper as well. Mm. So what they do is they go from community to community. They try to find these outliers, these people who have come up with an ingenious solution. Rough diamonds. Rough diamonds, exactly. These jugadus, as they're called. And they'll interview them. Uh, so it's a bit like pop idol for farmers. You know, they go <laughs> like, what's here? And then you know, the farmers get really excited because someone's come to ask them about their, you know, their what ideas. They their what they do in their practice. Yeah, yeah. So they're happy to talk about this. And they have now an enormous database of these best practices, which can be stored on a little device that can then project the the video on a wall, mm-hmm. you know, in a village, in a village community uh, space. So what they do is they record these videos and then they go community to community. And in the evening, they will sit down with people and people like to watch, you know, videos and so on. And somebody from outside has come to, and they watch their people who look like them from a neighboring village talking about these things and they, they learned that they could do the same thing. They tried out and then these people come back again. People from Digital Green will come back. They try to work with the community to get them to. So that's that's one example. Yeah, I was going to say with that sort of, um, with the improvement step, you would always think it needs the sort of iterative aspect yes. of like the person, yeah. you know, being able to re-ask the guy yeah. who's developed the yeah. solution because it's very difficult to document a lesson of how to do something, Absolutely. as you know. And then people just automatically know how to do it without yeah. going, I tried this, but, you know, people do everything wrong most yeah. of the time. Absolutely. So, yeah. so it has to be, as you said, it has to be iterative okay. and you have to have an ongoing, it's not just a this, one-time transaction. Was, yeah. Exactly. Because... It might have worked for that farmer in the neighboring village, mm-hmm. but then you're going to have to, you're going to have to try it yourself. And then you might find, well, it doesn't quite work that way. But if I tweak it, it works in my context and actually I can improve it. Okay. And then you can go back to the original community and show them the video from the other community. Look, yeah. they tried your idea. And actually, if you did this, you could. So it has to be an ongoing conversation. Absolutely right. 
I can imagine that sort of thing is also very good for helping with inter-community relations and things like that. Like surprisingly good at getting people who quite often can be across yeah. different different sort of socio uh, social divides to actually go and start you know yeah. meeting a bit more yeah. and things like that. Yeah, is, yeah, absolutely. Um, what are the greatest challenges, in your opinion, with Jugard? innovation what are the things that you would say currently hold it back and, and where can these barriers be broken down are you trying to do work in certain areas to help break it down and you know put more power into this type of innovation? yeah yeah absolutely so i think the barriers really are that the people in those communities who as i said uh come up with the diamond in the rough and often there are some of these are really ingenious solutions uh which they've you know from trial and error and because necessity is the mother invention they've come up with but often as i said it's to solve their own problem and they're not looking to commercialize it and even if they were they don't have the capabilities or the training or the time they're focused on their livelihoods farming right um so the the barrier is to scaling how do you take that diamond in the rough and smooth it, polish it, and then sell it to a larger world uh, out there? Uh, and for that, you need organization. And that's where business comes in. And it doesn't have to be a for-profit. It can be a social enterprise, so a social business, where you're making profits, but you're plowing them back into your social objective. Or it can be a charity, or it can be the government. But some kind of organization that is capable of, uh, is committed to solving the problem, is committed to scaling it, is capable of doing that. That is, they have the resources, the talent, the money, the other resources. They have to be able to go in, identify these diamonds in the rough, and then figure out a way to, uh, through organization, to commercialize them. And, you know, the M-Pesa example is an example of that. You, you had Vodafone in that case. You had a team. You had an R&D team that was committed. They had a solution. They went in. They learned from the community what would work, what wouldn't work. Then they worked with the Central Bank of Kenya, and then they came up with the solution. Mm -hmm. So those are the impediments and to really scaling Jugaad is mm -hmm. and yes you asked whether I you know so in my own humble way I'm an mm -hmm. academic so I don't pretend to really be able to do business I teach it <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, I write about it and my I, my sort of contribution I would hope is to advise people who are who are actually doing the work mm -hmm. and to, to actually study them and understand how they do it and what works and what doesn't work and to encourage them to do it Mm. And in, increasingly, I see a lot of our students here in Cambridge, often working in the mix space, mm. who are doing that, uh, who are committed to solving those problems, who are coming up with solutions and then are commercializing those solutions. I actually heard there was one that came maybe directly out of the mix space, one sort of company that works in med. I only heard this yesterday, I should have written them down, but uh, they work in med tech with fingerprint sensors in sub-Saharan Africa, am I right? Yes. Which I believe you were partly involved in as well. That's right. So that's a good example. Simprints. Yeah. Yeah, and it was four students uh, from Cambridge. One of them was my student, Toby Norman, mm. while they were doing their PhDs. And they had no technical background. They worked here in the make space. They got help from people with the technical background yeah, yeah. to build various generations of this device that would read fingerprints to identify people and to pull up their medical records when they're in the village mm. and then help with vaccination programs and so yeah. on. And they've done phenomenally well. So that's a very good example, mm. not necessarily in agriculture, mm. but you can see things like that can be applied, that kind of approach can be applied certainly to agricultural solutions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so in terms of the uh, the sort of 
bottlenecks or the difficulties you've just talked about, it seems like for most of them, these things have already been done by certain companies. Does that then mean that it's more of just companies understanding this type of innovation that you think really is essentially what needs to be done at the moment is people need to be educated on Jugard innovation, educated on proven innovation, and um, and companies already have all the tools in place that they need to actually implement this stuff. There's nothing that actually holds it back that we haven't figured out how to do. I I, I absolutely think so. I okay. think all the tools and and it's being done. It's right, being done. Right for picking. You know? Absolutely yeah. right for yeah. picking. And in fact, this is, uh, in many ways, this is going to be where the next wave of growth for many, even Western companies is going to come from. Mm. Because you could argue that growth in the West is slowed down for good, for forever. It's not going to grow like it did in the post-war period. Because, you know, frankly, people's lives are vastly better in the last 50 years than they were prior to the Second World War, mm. you know, in terms of health, education, and even though the West has problems, and I'm not going to deny that, yeah. you know, many basic needs have been solved and are addressed either by the state or by companies in an affordable way mm. for the vast majority of people in the West. But that's not true in, in the emerging world. Many people do not have access to things that we just take for granted here in the West, access to clean water, clean energy, good healthcare and education and things like that. And so that, that's an opportunity for growth for Western businesses. Mm. That's where they can experience their next wave of growth. And they've recognized that. Uh, and, and, and many of them are trying, but it is difficult, as we've said, because the business models are different. They have to relocate and you have to be patient because you're not going to make that return so quickly. It'll take an investment. Just as in the West, when the West was developing in the 19th and early 20th century, companies were committed to a, a community and developing the community as much as making profits. Mm, and so okay. it's, it's got to be that. Um, to sort of highlight for, I suppose, maybe engineers or innovators working on these uh, solutions today, what sort of questions do you think people should be asking themselves? I mean, what's a good, is, is there like a set of questions that you would say just help people get into the right frame of mind so that they can go, I have been developing this in this way for a little while. I need to go out and actually find out more about the problem I'm trying to solve. Can I actually, I mean, is it just knowing your, the assumptions you're making as in the product you're creating requires electricity? It's uh, that sort of stuff. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I love the fact you brought up engineers because I love engineers. I myself studied engineering as an undergrad and I'm a failed engineer. And that's why I respect engineers even more. Why? Because they're practical. They solve problems. They understand the importance of solving problems. But they have, I think where it breaks down sometimes is which problem they're solving and for whom. Mm. And often, if you are, you know, uh, an educated, sophisticated engineer, you know, you are challenged by pushing the technology frontier sometimes for the sake of doing that. Mm. You want to come up with the next, you know, cutting edge technology that the world has not seen mm. and that you are bringing into the world. But a lot of the problems in the developing world don't necessarily need that, you know, uh, space age technology. <laughs> yeah. Or if it is, then they need it in a ubiquitous form like that mobile telephony that exactly. they can afford yeah. precisely. And that will actually make a material difference to their lives now. Mm. Right. Mm. So I think it's engineers have this great problem solving ability and um, temperament and mindset. The question is, are they willing to, to, to sort of in a way, uh, compromise on their their personal will to push the technology frontier for the sake of it, mm. as opposed to applying technology 
to a problem that needs to be solved and not lead with the technology. Actually lead with understanding the problem, then asking what technology is appropriate in that context, uh, you know, to use. So if it is something that requires electricity and there's not going to be regular electricity there, then clearly that's not going to work in that context. And Simprints very cleverly recognized that, you know, they knew the context. They didn't have the technical knowledge, interestingly. They knew the context. And, and they, they knew, started with the context and, and got to the solution. And then they said what kind of technology would then work in that context. Yeah, I think a lot of people, it can be really difficult to realize the importance of the problem because it's far easier to begin learning about technologies than actually it is, most, especially if you're in the Western world. It's the things that are in our environment. I mean, I can go into the next room, the room next to us, and I can use all sorts of different technologies. There's all sorts of high-tech gear. But I can't go and speak to someone who has the problem when I go next door. Yeah. That takes that extra bit of um, yeah. the extra bit of energy you're trying. So in a way, it's sort of it's it's lazier to start with the yeah. complex technical yeah. stuff than yeah. it is um, with actually going talking yeah. to um, the people who have yeah. the problems. Yeah. Um, with that in mind. How can individuals who are working on these uh, or working on solutions or working on problems get closer to people who have these problems? So for someone like me, it's not that easy from here to go and reach out, I would say. Well, I, I would say I don't really know exactly where to go yeah. in a developing world Fair to enough. find the people with the problem. How does one go about that? Great question. So many ways. And in fact, I've seen students in Cambridge, uh, you know, address precisely this question in many different ways. So one is that uh, students, again, are immensely idealistic, committed, and, and resourceful. So there are student groups that uh, have uh, adopted a particular country, say in Africa. And by say adopted, I mean they've focused on that country. So there's a, there's a Cambridge group called, of students called Cambridge Development Initiative, CDI. And they said, you know, we're going to change the way uh, we volunteer. So there are lots of Cambridge uh, uh, students who uh, spend their summer volunteering, often in an African country or an Asian country. They go there to learn something about the country, to help out with some initiatives there, which helps them with their life, uh, helps them with their professional, it gets them some kind of focus as well. And they learn about another culture and so forth. So they said, let's focus on Tanzania for some reason. You know, they chose that country. They said, let's partner with the university there. So they chose Dar es Salaam. They partnered with the university there. And for several years now, they've been developing projects in partnership with their counterparts in Tanzania in areas related to health, sanitation, um, medicine, uh, education, and also enterprise more generally, social enterprise. And throughout the year, they organize uh, uh, events both here and in so in the holidays, you can go over uh, with the view to in the summer, actually having a program that goes from year to year, uh, sanitation projects, healthcare projects, and so on in partnership. So there are opportunities even while being here to visit, to participate in these kinds of events where you can actually go there. I think there's nothing like going to a particular country where you feel that you have some links, you have some commitment, some interest, you know, so focus and then participate. Now, if you cannot go, and of course, that's probably the case for most people, there are ingenious ways now of getting that insight into what's happening in that context uh, by sit while sitting here. So I have a PhD student uh, who I'm co-supervising with somebody in geography, and she started her PhD last year. 
And we were going to look at uh, how these Jugaad entrepreneurs in urban slums come up with uh, lighting solutions uh, and solar solutions, often cheap ones, you know, selling lights and so on, solar lights, but also water because drinking water is a problem. So they, you know, they sell water packets and things like that. Um, so we were going to look at that and how they do Jugaad in an urban context. Uh, how they solve some of their problems, uh, a lack of clean drinking water, of electricity, and so on. Now, for that, you've got to do field work. You've got to go into the slums. You've got to talk to people. You've got to see what their problems are, and so on. And she couldn't do any of that because of COVID. So we have contacts in the universities there, people who are working in the slums in Cape Town, in Johannesburg. And she did video intercepts on her mobile phone. So she said, can you take me on a walking tour of Soweto? And that's what she did. So the person on the ground was there on WhatsApp call. And then she said, could you go up to that lady and ask her what she's doing? And she did that. Uh, uh, you know, so partly driven by the person on the ground who knows the context and partly driven by the academic here. And you can get very rich insights. You can do ethnography uh, in that way, right? Mm. Uh, I'll give you another source of, uh, and again, Cambridge-based. So for some years now, out of polis, political science department, there has been an organization called uh, Africa's Voices. Mm -hmm. And what they realized was that in Africa, you have two big mass communications uh, technologies. One is radio, which has been there for a long time. And the other is the mobile phone and social media, right? So they said these two could be married in a very interesting way to get insights into people we don't typically have any insights into, people in rural uh, Africa. So what can we do? We can work with local DJs, radio DJs, who have a huge following. And let's say we're the public health department in Uganda and we want to know about teenagers and, you know, sex education. And we want to know about AIDS in their community. Or now we want to know about COVID and all of their attitudes, how prevalent is it in their community, etc. So we'll tell the radio DJ one afternoon a week, say, focus on something, say AIDS in the community. And just ask throughout the question. Like, what's your experience of it? Text us or, uh, you know, go on Facebook and tell us about it. And they got enormous uh, unstructured data, verbal data, which then can be analyzed using machine learning techniques. And you can identify the keywords that people use. You can get qualitative insights. You can also get quantitative insights. You can ask people, you know, you can take surveys, how many people in your village have this, how, how long have they been suffering, things like that. And that was very uh, influential for the public health department because they had prior to this, their campaigns were all written by medical doctors yeah. from, uh, from, the, from that country, but sitting in the city mm. and not teenagers. Mm. And they were using highly medicalized language in their appeals, which just went way above the heads of the teenagers and just didn't relate. They didn't relate to it. So they changed their entire language. They used the words the teenagers were using. They made it cool. The teenagers could relate to it. And it was far more effective. So, you know, these are some of the ways in which I one can... can see that as being a sort of a sort of textbook case of actually just going to the people who have the problems and asking them yeah. what the problem is. But you don't necessarily have to go door to door. Yeah, you can use these technologies yeah. to get that insight. Ways of scaling it, which is it's really cool. Um, Jody, I'd like to thank you very much for chatting to me today. I'm definitely going to put up uh, stuff like the Cambridge Development Initiative onto the sort of blog that we do 
Um, and yeah, it's been really enjoyable talking and I'll have to tell everyone to buy your uh, Frugal Innovation was the last one. Is that the That's right. One? But that's more focused on the innovation West. within en- enterprise in the West where Pon, uh, uh, Gigard Innovation is actual stories from... The emerging world. And actually, yeah. just on the second book on frugal innovation, mm-hmm. we shouldn't ignore the fact that there's a lot, there are a lot of problems in the West, which can be solved by doing frugal innovation. And now we have many companies and startups and big companies in the West adopting frugal innovation for the West. And that's what the second book is about. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you very much. And yeah. my pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Biotech Podcast. If you'd like to find out more about the show, or the researchers we've been talking to, you can either check out the description on your podcast player, or head over to our website at thebiotechpodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please reach out with thoughts and comments about the show.